Thanks for joining the Heights Church podcast today. We hope that you enjoy the message. If you're in the Sydney area, be sure to join us at the Heights Church at Golston Road, Hornsby Heights, Sydney, Australia. And this morning I'd like to read to you from Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 19 and we'll continue to verse 31. I'll be reading today from the New International Version. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now apart from the law of the righteous of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are freely justified by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works. No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? It is he, not the God of Gentiles too. Yes, of the Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. May God add his special blessing and portion to each one of us as we continue in worship. Welcome, everyone. It's uh, great to be here and, uh, and great to be able to share with you the good news of uh, the gospel as we continue our our series in Romans, I found last week quite disturbing. I don't know about you. Uh, not the bad news, I can handle the truth. But what was disturbing was that how Chris seemed to enjoy delivering the bad news. <laughs> Maybe you should have been a dentist instead of going towards being a pastor. I don't know, like, like I've got good news and I've got bad news. Bad news is you need a root canal. The good news is I just paid for my accommodation in, in Copacabana overseas. But seriously, if you want to hear a message that I think is probably a keeper beyond all imagination, that was last week's message by Chris. It was a great, great message of 
the bad news of the gospel and I have the privilege of presenting the good news of the gospel today. Because without understanding the bad news, the good news gets actually lessened, the impact gets lessened over time because we just hear the good news all the time rather than understand where, why we need it. But we do need it. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we open up God's word, as we open up your word, uh, I pray that you would speak to us through your spirit, that we would have hearts that would listen and, uh, and your Holy Spirit might bring knowledge to us so that in our understanding we might have a better hold on what you have done for us on the cross. And I pray this, Lord, in your name. Amen. I'm pretty sure you would agree that performance dominates nearly every aspect of our modern world. Susan, as a teacher, is, is uh, evaluated on her performance. Her kids are evaluated on their performance. If you're a cricket player like Isaac, he's evaluated on his performance and whether he goes to higher grades and plays at higher grades will be dependent upon his, uh, his performance or not. Our economy uh, is, is evaluated by his performance, which is not doing so well at the moment, but that's, not, that's neither here nor there. We buy goods like running shoes and computers and we prioritise that by performance. Tyler was telling us uh, about the performance of his new car and that's one of the reasons why he went down and bought a new one. Uh, Even movies like Rotten Tomatoes evaluates the performance of the movie and, and how it goes. Our super funds, our financial investments are all evaluated by its performance and we kind of go with that and walk with that. Now, given that our culture is so pervasive in its performance uh, driven, uh, it's only natural that we might assume that our spiritual journey and our relationship with God is also hinged upon our performance as people, our performance as maybe even Christians. We might believe that by striving to do the right thing and become better as individuals, that we can connect with God and grow with God. However, the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Christians at Rome, challenges this notion. And early chapters of his letter makes it very clear. He references Psalm 14, highlighting that no one's inherently good. No one possesses true understanding or genuinely seeks God. The reality is that all of humanity has turned away from God and gone astray. That would include you. That would include me. It includes everyone. Everyone has sinned and failed to meet God's standard of perfection. No one is righteous. No one rightly stands before God. Not one. Whether it's the Jew through their eating and their, and their, their stringent diet or their festivals or, or keeping the law or whether it's the Gentiles in, in the Roman world giving, paying homage to their God through the different temple sacrifices and things like that. There is no one at all, who is morally upright, no one keeps God's law, no one ethically moves in the right way before God. I love to teach ethics at school. It'd be great. I won't have ever had the opportunity of that because they wouldn't let me do that. But if it was up to us as individuals to save this world and to promote this world going forward, we don't have a hope because we do not keep God's law No one truly can know and find acceptance from God through their performance. And I'm pretty sure you would understand that. Maybe you don't. Yet people 
can't really accept sometimes, can they? That they can't contribute toward their standing. Up their connection as Christians. They try to do all sorts of things. Maybe you've heard about uh, uh, people in the Philippines during Easter time who actually crucify themselves on a cross. Now, we're not talking like stations of the cross where they walk through the town with the cross on their back. We're talking about actually getting nailed to a cross. I was going to show a photo. Kids are in. Not going to do that. But here's, if you, if you want to go down that road, here's some, a, 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 some good news for you. The guy who does it continuously says, I only want to do it until next year. I'm looking for a successor. A man who serves as a good role model in his community and a person with good manners and values, not someone who would boast about the role or be too proud. And there's great significance that he's only doing it until next year is because this would be his 33rd time. He doesn't die through the crucifixion like Jesus. He just gets nailed there and then gets, um, then gets brought back. But because Jesus uh, was 33 years old, he feels though that might be the time when he should stop. You could go on that men's roster. I'm pretty sure of that if you really wanted to get down to that. No matter how hard we try, our performance always falls short. And yet sometimes people actually hold their performance to be right with God and connect rightly with God. I have a friend who met with us at Copa and Susan and I were sitting there talking to him and, uh, and I asked him, hadn't seen him for a long time, asked him whether he was attending a church and he went, no. And, I, and after some conversation, I asked him whether he had a faith and he said, yeah. And I said, well, how does that work? You know, you don't follow God, you don't live as a Christian, you don't read God's word, you don't go to church, but you have a faith. I said, what happens when you die? And he says, well, I believe, I would think that I've done enough to scrape through. That was his thoughts. That God's grace somehow is conditional to his performance. Religion can be tough. It demands a lot from us, but can't deliver anything. It cannot change the gap that we have between us and God. And that, because that gap is created by sin and something needs, to, something needs to or someone needs to deal with that problem of sin. And you can't read Romans chapters 1 and 2 without having a sense of hopelessness at the end of it. It's the great exchange, isn't it, that it talks about. We've exchanged truth for a lie. And the lie is that we think that we can live up to God's expectations and we can do what we, right, we think is right in our own eyes without consequence. But the consequences is that primarily that we are separated from the almighty God and we do not have a hope of getting back because all of us have sinned and fallen short of that glory and God has turned his face on sin, not just the sin we do, us as sinners, and cannot accept us back until we become right before him. Here's the good news. So I don't go on and preach a whole another sermon that Chris talked about last week. By the way, Chris, we've got night service on tonight, so I'm pretty sure this is the reason why we have this amount of people. Not that you preached a bad, about the bad news last week and everyone just cleared out. Here's the good news. Paul says in verse 9, what shall we conclude then? And in my words... Well, we should conclude that we're cooked. That in verse 21, 
though, we have the great words, but now. And if you're ever going to read through the New Testament, just look at the, this is happening, but now. And it's amazing. You should do, we should do a sermon series on the, the but nows of the Bible because it launches out not with just good news, with the most amazing news that you have ever heard in your life. David Cook would say the momentous news of all time that we, those sinners, can be saved from our sin and walk with our Lord. It's what my friend at Copa needed to hear. It's not about whether he just would scrape through. It's about whether he has faith in what Jesus has done on the cross, not what he does. And it's not about what we do. And it's not about what we will ever do. It's about what Jesus has done is the good news. And that's why the good news is what I need to hear, what you need to hear, what your neighbour needs to hear, what the Muslim person needs to hear, what the person at the Jewish temple needs to hear, what any person that is trying to appease God or be a good Christian to get there needs to hear. God with no obligation to do so, has graciously turned his face to us. And that's the good news. As Paul puts it later on in Romans, just at the right time when we were powerless to do anything about the gap that exists between us and God, Christ died for the ungodly. You and me, the ungodly sinners, this is what's called grace. That you and I are the ones who have not loved God with all our heart, mind, soul and strength, who have not loved our neighbour as we ought, in his perfect timing came and sacrificed himself for us, even when we didn't deserve it. God doesn't owe us anything. We are not due anything from God. It's not about our own efforts or our performances. Nothing from God is due to us. It is his amazing grace. The momentous news of God loving us. Paul explains this momentous news so that everyone will understand it. And he uses illustrations of the time or words that connect people back then with, with elements of their society. Like, for example, he uses words that would connect a law response to it or a market response to it or a temple response to it. We'll see it as we go on. God's amazing solution. First of all, we are justified by his grace. The word justification comes from a law word. And it's explained in Romans 3, to 24, that justification means that we, that, that through our belief in Jesus, we are declared not guilty and righteous before God. We are declared not guilty and righteous before God. It goes beyond forgiveness. When we're justified, it's like receiving a legal verdict of not guilty, being considered totally in the right in God's standing, God's eyes. It's the judge declaring that we stand right before God, not based on emotion, and not based on a feeling that we might have. It's based on the declaration of a holy judge. He says we are not guilty. But here's the amazing part. 
and the momentous news that that declaration of us not being guilty is without condition on our part. We read in verse 24 that is freely given by his grace. We don't deserve it. As I said, we've all sinned, fallen short of that glory of God, yet he freely justifies us by his grace. His undeserved favour towards us. We didn't earn it and there is no merit to us. We actually deserve the opposite, don't we? I don't know whether you've ever tried to clean up your act to be accepted by somebody. Maybe for the guy going out for the day that's going out buying new clothes and, and connecting with all. For me, I can't get a haircut to kind of impress anything, but, but for me it was I needed to learn how to dance because I couldn't dance worth beans and I still can't dance worth beans, but I wanted to invite my now wife, Susan, out for a dance uh, when I was uh, out at a, at a presentation cowboy bar and, uh, and so I needed to learn how to dance. So I danced with every other girl that I possibly could to try to learn some, some, uh, some dancing techniques before I asked Susan to dance with me. She said no, but that was, that was all right at the beginning. Um, so I tried to clean up my act so I'd be accepted by her. And sometimes we try to clean up our act, and it's a bit like the courts in our society. It's not like the courts really in our society that this justification is talking about because sometimes you can go to court and you can say, well, I've been doing this course trying to clean up my act. I've been doing this community service trying to clean up my act. I've been doing these type of things to try to improve my character and make myself a better person. And possibly in the, under the lenience of the judge, they'll see everything that we've done, that, that the person's done, and pronounce them not, not guilty, but no sentence. That's not like that. God says, you're not guilty, not for anything that you have done, but because of what the Son has done. There are no prerequisites required. Come and you will be credited with the perfect righteousness of Jesus. See, here's the amazing thing about it, isn't it? When the judge looks upon me, he sees Jesus, Jesus' righteousness, one who is perfect, one who has never sinned. It's not that I haven't sinned, but he sees me and pronounces me not guilty and will go on why he's able to do that because he sees Jesus and what he has done for me on the cross. It's part of the great exchange. He takes my unrighteousness and places the righteousness of God, a righteousness for Christ on me. He fulfilled Christ, all the requirements of the law for his life and death so that we can be declared right with God. He takes my and your unrighteousness and gives us the perfect gift of his right relationship with the Father. Have you ever had your mind blown last week? Let me start off that this week is with the amazing news that we have ever heard. We sung about it this morning, isn't it? When he shall come in trumpet sound, oh, may on then in him be found. In him, my righteousness alone, faultless, to stand before the throne when he judges. 
that the guilty sinner, the unrighteous man, can stand faultless before God is on what basis? Grace. His unmerited favour on me. Romans 3, 23 to 24 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Jesus Christ. That's the second word he uses. Kind of the redemption is a marketplace word. Maybe you've got a handle on it before if you've ever gone down to a pawn shop, P-A-W-N shop, uh, and sort of put something in to get a loan out. Uh, there's times like cash converters and things like that where, and, and TV shows that talk about it where, like, for example, I might have a surfboard that has some value to it. I need money for something. I go along to uh, the shop and then I, I put in my surfboard. I once owned it. They now own it. They give me the money back. Uh, they give me the money that, that I asked for it. I come back. I give them money back with interest. I get the surfboard back, so I own it again. I have redeemed it back to myself. That's kind of the whole, uh, whole wording of it. It's back into that marketplace sort of situation. From the 1400s, uh, slavery, the way that we would understand it from the Bible perspective, from the 1400s, slavery saw people ripped from their homes and countries to live in bondage. People were traded or captured as collateral often uh, for the success of the invasion by different countries where they captured the people. They become trading commodities that people did through, uh, with people. But slavery in ancient times wasn't like that. It didn't reflect the practice of the so-called modern-day slavery. If you couldn't pay a debt, then you would place yourself in slavery of another person. You are bound to them until you were able to pay the debt off. Now, whether that happened in your lifetime or not, we don't know. But back in ancient Israel times, you would pay, when you finished off paying off your debt, you were redeemed and you were then free to live out of debt and out of bondage. Now, we are in bondage. We are slaves to sin and unrighteousness. We cannot pay the debt that is owed to God, no matter how hard we try. In other words, we cannot redeem ourselves by working off the debt. And that's where grace steps in. If you want to see a great example of redemption, all you have to do is look at the story of Isaiah. It is a picture of God's love for his unfaithful people. Hosea graciously marries a woman called Goma, a prostitute, but his wife, she is unfaithful. And she eventually leaves him and goes back to the old lovers. See, once at one time they were together. It's like God was together with his people. But they become unfaithful and they went out to the place that they should never go to and worship the things that they should never worship. But Hosea is a, is personifies that kind of relationship. God told Hosea to go and buy her back as a demonstration of a way that God loves and saves his people. Gomer was a slave. And a slave was always, in that time, sold naked in the marketplace. She came with nothing on her. So Hosea went to the marketplace where the auction was held and bids for his own wife to come back again. And we're told the price that he paid for her, implying that there were other bidders making, making, making some kind of you know, motion to try to get her. 
But having brought her back, he had the right to kill her, had the right, right to make a public spectacle of her. Instead, he clothed her, he led her away as his wife, and he told her to love him and committed himself to loving her. It is a picture of redemption. That we're in bondage, having sold ourselves as to sin, we're incapable of redeeming ourselves, but God in his grace redeems us and paid the price to get us back to the place where we belong. And we are told to love him with all our heart and he says he will love us with everything that he has. It is that redemption where he buys us back. Then we come to a, a pretty hard word, and it's probably one of those scrabble words again that I've been mentioning over the time, propitiation. Now, you might think to yourself, I, what do I ever want to remember that? You, the NIV kind of makes it uh, out as a sacrifice of atonement. Sacrifice of atonement in verse 25, or propitiation, is a religious word. It's a temple word. So we've gone from a law word, from the law practice, to a market word, so people understand redemption, buying something back, to a temple word about sacrifice of atonement. And it explains what Jesus' death means. See, in some ways we need that, don't we? We need to know why and how can God pronounce us not guilty. Surely the things that we've done deserve some kind of penalty. That's one thing, but... We don't want to just reduce it to just the penalty. We need to understand that God pours his wrath upon sin and upon humanity. And it's not unrighteous anger. It is right anger because his creation has removed themselves and done what they thought was right in their own eyes apart from him. They rejected him. And he mentioned about Lord and violence. They said, well, you're not my Lord. You're not even my creator. You don't know what's best for me. I'll do what I want in my own eyes. Thank you very much. And God is right to be angry. And someone needs to pay that anger, to be part of that solution. We can't be, but God himself is the one that can say my anger is now being dealt with. See, a popular topic, it's not a popular topic, God's wrath. And people reduce that sometimes to God is a love, uh, God of love and forgiveness and mercy and compassion. And that he is. He is a God of love, forgiveness, mercy and compassion. But he's also a God of wrath. When I was uh, um, in, in between jobs, between uh, Narrabeen, uh, no, between Mittagong Anglican and Toronto Baptist Church, uh, I went to a church that asked me really clearly how many times I preached sin in the year. And I said, well, whenever the Bible brings it up. They said, well, we only like to preach sin two or three times a year, thanks. That's all we want. Because we don't like to, for people to feel as though that there's something wrong between them and God and that God is angry at them, we'd much rather preach that God is a God of love and forgiveness and mercy and compassion. But unless we truly understand that God is a God of wrath, that he is angry against us, our sinners, we really don't understand the good news or it's lessened. Because the good news is 
that he has dealt with that. We see that in, in, uh, in, um, <clears throat> in different movies, like the idea of propitiation is seen in movie King Kong, where King Kong is angry at the world. He's just angry because he wants to be angry. And then that people come along with this innocent maiden and put them there as a, a sacrifice. And he takes the innocent maiden and puts them up on some Empire State Building or whatever, whatever uh, happened. And there is a, his anger is appeased. But this is a kind of a pagan idea because in some ways it, 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 it's not about whether God just wants to be angry or not. He's righteously angry. Yet again, we have that great exchange, don't we? He takes what's rightfully ours and that is his anger, his wrath and places it where? On himself. See, some people have, don't use propitiation and don't use the sacrifice of atonement because they think it's some kind of cosmic child abuse. You've got Jesus as the son. God pours down his wrath upon Jesus on the cross. They go, what? How could that possibly be? But what people don't understand is that the son on the cross is actually God. It is God the son. He takes his anger upon himself so it might... His anger might be appeased and he might accept the sacrifice that is given. So we look at it this way. God is up the top of a triangle. Jesus, the son, is down one side and man is on the other side. God pours down his wrath rightfully on both. But what happens is that Jesus takes it. He then gives to us his righteousness and he takes from God the anger that was rightfully due to us so that we might have a relationship once again with God. That's what happens. God placed his wrath upon Jesus so that Jesus might take that through the sacrifice that he made because the wages of sin is death and so Jesus died for us so that he's able to give us redemption and we're able then to have a relationship rightly with God again. He took the initiative. It is the momentous news that once I was guilty, but now I am pronounced not guilty. Once I was a slave to sin, but now I am free to live as a child of God. Once I was an object of wrath, as Ephesians talk about, talks about, but now I am free. I am saved. I am with Jesus. What does that mean for us? Well, it means, as I started, that we can live without guilt. Not because we've become better people and therefore we live better and therefore we can, in our, we can evaluate our performance and say that our performance is, is up to par so therefore we don't have to be guilty. We can live without guilt because we know that we have been pronounced not guilty by the judge of the whole universe. And now we, instead of being a slave to sin and following sin's desires, we can be free to walk the way that Jesus wants, to in faith, walk in obedience. 
In faith of what? In faith that we have been redeemed by God, not in faith that we have done the right things or completed the right task or sit in the right church or do whatever it might be. We've been redeemed because Jesus has redeemed us. We have become his bride that he sought in the desert. When he could have left us to die, he brought us back and says, you will love me and I will love you. And we're free to do that. And we know we're free to do that because the price has been paid and the wrath of God has now been placed upon Jesus and he has dealt with that and we know that God accepted it. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. So our sin has been dealt with and we can stand in the forgiveness of God. Isn't that momentous news? Isn't that great news? Now, we could reduce all that and say, I'm saved. But let me say that when someone says to you at Easter time, why did Jesus need to go to the cross? You should be able to say because that needed to happen so that God could pronounce us not guilty. But he can't just do that because it's just a sham if that sin has not been dealt with. But he dealt with that. He dealt with the punishment of that. He dealt with the anger of that so that he might allow us to have a relationship with him again. That is momentous news. That is the good news of the gospel. And Paul is going to go on and talk about that and talk about what it might mean for you to live out that in your life. We're going to have the uh, privilege as we go through Romans to connect with that some more. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at our life and we look at what we're due and what we're owed by our not loving you and not loving others, help us, Lord, not to get to the point in our life where we think all we have to do is clean up our act and get ourselves better and then maybe you would accept us. Help us to understand what you're talking about in Romans that We are lost without hope, but you have stepped in and provided what we cannot give. We can't make ourselves right. Your wrath is completely what we're due and what we're owed through our rebellion, and yet you took that, you dealt with that yourself so that we might be redeemed and now with you so that we might live with you forever. That is why we worship. That is why we give of our heart. That's why we give of our life. That's why we step out and in faith thank you for what you have done for us. I pray that would be forever on our lips and we might sing of that for all eternity. How gracious you are and how loving you are in providing what we could not provide.